Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today it's our honor to be joined by one of America's greatest and most important scholars, Annette Gordon Reed. She's the author of the famous book, The Hemingses of Monticello, which became a turning point in the study of Thomas Jefferson. Today, though, we're going to discuss her new book on Juneteenth. She's won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and is among the most respected historians among academics, uh, academics students, readers of popular history, and users of Twitter. She's also a legal historian and a professor at Harvard. Thanks so much for being here, Professor Gordon Reed. Glad to be here. Thank you for asking me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We are going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. The first time I heard of Juneteenth, I remember it. I was a young reporter in Syracuse, New York, and was sent to cover the celebration. It was a lot of food and a bunch of happy kids throwing water balloons at each other, and there was a speech or two. That was in either 2006 or 2007. The first Juneteenth, though, was June 19th. 1865, when a Union general named Gordon Granger announced in Galveston, Texas, that slavery had been abolished. Explain, Professor, how that announcement was made, to who, and what we would have seen had we been there that day. It must have been emotional. Well, I'm sure it was very emotional. The people who lived in Galveston, African-Americans who lived there, had heard that something was going to happen, so they knew he was coming. Um, there are disputes about how it was read. There, the traditional story is that he read it from the balcony of a villa where he was staying in Galveston. Other accounts say that his soldiers went through Galveston at various points reading um, his General Order 3, which announced the end of slavery, and that's how it got out. And you know, it makes sense that it would be a more general dissemination than him standing on the balcony, but maybe he did both. We don't know. What do we know about the reaction of the people who were there to see it? Oh, they were jubilant. They were very, very happy. And word spread from Galveston fairly quickly into the outlying areas. Galveston was the most important city in, in uh, Texas during that time. Uh, so it was met with jubilation, but at the same time, it was met with some hostility towards whites who had just lost a war and had lost their property interest in enslaved black people. So it was a combination of, of joy and probably fear because there were retaliations against uh, people who were celebrating. There was one account of a group of, of former enslaved people who were celebrating and they got whipped. Uh, they were rounded up and whipped. So it was joy and pain at the same time. Uh, we are going to get to more of the reaction and then also what happened in the decades that followed. Um, but this was so interesting. One of the first things you say in the book is that you were surprised to see people in other states celebrating Juneteenth when you were uh, a bit younger. You are possessive over this holiday <laughs> that has Texas origin, origins because you also have Texas origins. Yes, um, yes. Uh, Texans are proud of Texas. And I thought of this even before I got to this point in your book. Texans are proud of Texas the way New Yorkers like me are proud mm -hmm. of New York. Yeah, what was behind what was behind your initial possessiveness? And what well, does it say about Texas and Texans? 
Yeah. Well, you know, I've gotten over that, Evan. I've gotten over that possessiveness. Now I want everybody to celebrate it. No, it was just a sort of an initial surprise because I, I had grown up with this holiday thinking that this was just about Texans and did not realize that Texas, there's a Texas diaspora. People move from Texas and go other places. And that's what happened. You know, you know, Texans who went to Detroit, who went to California and other places, they brought the holiday with them. And so it was natural that people celebrated, but I've, I've gotten over that, that idea of, of possessiveness about it. But it was so particular to uh, Galveston, that moment uh, that I thought, hey, this is ours, but now I think it belongs to everybody. And towards the end of the book, you do um, mention the celebrations that you still remember. Do you want to describe how you celebrated uh, Juneteenth? Is it the way I described it in Syracuse? Pretty much. Not, I don't remember water balloons. Well, firecrackers. <laughs> we had firecrackers, uh, and uh, and and uh, you know, all other kind of smoke bombs, various things like that that we 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 kids, our grandparents bought for us. Uh, it was a day of celebration. It was sort of a precursor to July fifth. It was not a holiday in the sense that you got off from school because we weren't in school when this happened. But it was a great summer time for people to come together and barbecue. My grandfather uh, had a barbecue pit and people would bring barbecue for him to make for them. And my grandmother made tamales and uh, we would make those. Those were always big sellers during holidays. So it was a holiday of food and celebration. Some people that could be church services. Um, I, this is in the country now, of course, in the cities and there were it, at parks, there would be bigger celebrations, you know, with music and and uh, speakers and so forth. But for us, it was just it was a day for family and friends and little kids to run around and you know, throw, throw firecrackers at one another, drink a lot of soda. You mentioned you mentioned that there is a diaspora of Texas, perhaps like there is a diaspora of New York or maybe Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, what is it about Texas that makes it the perfect state to understand the rest of the country? Because everything happened there. All of the major currents in American life. There's slavery. There's Western expansion. There's which in, implicates indigenous people. Uh, there's the question of Hispanic culture. Texas has Mexican heritage background, uh, plantation slavery. It borders uh, another country. All of those things, there's no other state that has all of those things in one place. There's one thing, but not the other. And so you can understand a lot about race, about politics, about you know all, demographics. All those things are embodied in this one place. And so it's a, it's a good place to study the country. Juneteenth is, of course, about celebrating the end of slavery. Um, and there's a um, significant movement underway um, to have it celebrated every year in the United States and make it a federal holiday. Um, so let's talk about slavery a little bit in Texas. This quote from the book, I think, stands out. You say, the choice for slavery was deliberate, and that reality is hard to square with the desire to present a pristine and heroic origin story about the settlement of Texas. There's no way to do that without suggesting that the lives of African Americans and their descendants in Texas did not and do not matter. Yes. Well, it's tough because the people who came to Texas, who founded Texas, 
had as an idea that slavery would be the basis of their economy, that that would be an integral part of it. And I was just suggesting, what does that mean for a person who is a descendant of enslaved people in Texas? How are we supposed to view uh, that, that moment? It's hard to think of it as pure heroism when you realize that the people who are coming and that my ancestors were brought over, um, in my family's case, some you know, from Georgia and some from Mississippi and Alabama, were brought there uh, to be enslaved. So the heroic vision of the founding is problematic. It, it can't be an unbridled celebration. And I guess it's the same, again, back to America. It's, it's the same dynamic that's there. On one hand, you're glad that there's a Texas, you're glad that there's a United States, but you realize that it was a mixed bag at the founding and, and it's taken a long time to try to right a lot of wrongs and to you know, bring black people into true citizenship in the nation and in that, that particular state. So you're torn between uh, boosterism and thinking, but yeah, there's a, there's a downside to all of this. It wasn't all, wasn't all you know, a bed of roses uh, to, to start. One of the things that, um that this book reminded me of is the recent book by another of my favorites and someone who I know that you know, we've talked about him on Twitter before, uh, Robert Caro. He just wrote yes. a book that was partly autobiographical um, along with a description of how he'd studied Lyndon Johnson, who's also of course a Texan. Um, uh, and so I, I was just interested in, in that kind of parallel. Um, and I wanna know what impact Texas had on you growing up. Um, I was horrified to hear your story of the white bully who hit you. Um, and it even sounded ridiculous to you as a youngster that you were somehow different and under attack um, from some of the kids you were surrounded by. Um, so I guess the way that I want to ask the question is, how was slavery discussed in school? And what does that tell us about the mystique that Texas has cultivated? Well, first I should preface this by saying all indications are they're doing a much better job of talking about these issues today than when I was a kid. We were talking the dark ages here in the 60s, and uh, it wasn't discussed that much. In the 60s and the 70s, going through school, uh, it was something that was sort of passed over. We certainly weren't taught, I think, the, I don't recall being taught of the connection between wanting independence from Mexico and the issue of slavery. Slavery, slavery was, it was always in danger of being abolished. It had been abolished in, in Mexico and they might have done it in this particular province. There were always exceptions made for it, but there was a fear that they would go the whole way and abolish it totally. So that puts a different cast on the battle with Mexico. Again, it may not well, I, I don't want to say it may not for whites. It may for whites as well, but definitely for black people, black Texans, to say, you know, remember the Alamo, remember Goliad. Uh, we can honor the sacrifices of people who think that they are standing up for a cause, but that cause involved would have involved the maintenance of the institution of slavery in Texas. It was mm -hmm. a slaveholders republic, and that's that's one of the that's why it was controversial. It's, it's entry into the union. Uh, it was controversial in, you know, overseas as well, because there was a sort of explicit understanding that this is what this uh, new republic was supposed to be about. Did you find that you ran into the 
um, encountered the mystique that Texas cultivated in pop culture and also Hollywood cultivated in pop culture as this white cowboy. Um, and that that was sort of why you wanted to explore with this book what Texas means to, and I'm using quotes, the other people who live <laughs> in Texas, African-Americans, Mexicans, uh, Mexican-Americans, the indigenous. Yeah, and I thought it would be fun. My editor, Bob Weil, has wanted me to do a book about Texas for a long time. And I think he, we had in mind at first a bigger book, a much bigger book than this. This is a small book. It's a short book. Uh, I just wanted to, I thought it would be a good time to have some personal reflections about this place, what it meant uh, to me, what it, how it shaped me, um, how the kind of uh, outsized personality that it, it, it has uh, trickles down into individual people. <laughs> and I think gives you a sort of confidence that if you don't let it go too far, it could be a good a good springboard, you know, for you to go on and to do other things. Um, th the sense that you're special. And I think that's something that is cultivated. It certainly was cultivated when I was growing up in Texas. And, and I think, interestingly enough, African Americans have that same view about it. I mean, we understand the problems, but because of our connections, sort of having this place tied up with your family and history and all of those things, you make allowances for it and you, you there's the boosterism, but again, as I said, it's tempered by, by reality. At what age or about where in your schooling did you start to realize, oh boy, um, this is not as neat a story as I have been led to believe by everything I'm surrounded by. Um, and did that realization start to influence, I assume it did, your desire to study history? Well, I would say I had a dim awareness of it um, in, you know, when I started thinking about slavery, which when I was a kid, I had a, I read a, a, a biography as a, as a third grader, a biography of Jefferson that mentioned slavery and talked about slavery. And I related that, what I learned from that book to my knowledge about slavery in in, in the United States, excuse me, in Texas. And I knew about that because of Juneteenth. Uh, my I li my great grandmother lived until I was about ten, ten or eleven years old, and her mother had been enslaved as a girl. She was freed by her father, and, and when she was a little girl, and along with her mother, and so my great grandmother knew someone who had been enslaved, and in fact, her mother had married, had two three husbands, and they two of them died, and then your third husband had been enslaved himself. So it was never very far away. So that was my first inkling that, wait a minute, this was a place where, where people were enslaved. And so there's a, at least there, that's a complicated legacy here. Uh, it's not just about the good things. You think about that particular reality. This is so, in I thought this was so interesting because everything I did growing up, uh, you know, scoring a goal as a six-year-old in soccer, um, performing in the school play, what have you. I I was showered with, oh, what a job you did. How fantastic. And I felt proud about these things. <laughs> and then I read in your book that you integrated a school and um, barely realized you were living history. Um, 
uh, tell us about that experience. What and when did you learn that this that you had done this and the fact that you were able to do this without attracting the attention that made you kind of stop and look around and go, wait a minute, this is a much bigger deal than, um, you know, than it might seem, um, you know, uh, second by second here as I walk through these doors. Yeah. Well, uh, my parents uh, decided to send me to a white school. There was a, this was 10 years after Brown and they were still resisting. Uh, People in the South were still resisting, whites in the South primarily were resisting uh, desegregation. And they came up with something called the Freedom of Choice Plan, which meant that for them, that white parents were supposed to pick white schools and black parents were supposed to pick black schools. Well, my parents decided to do different, that they would pick a white school for me to go to. They thought that eventually the Freedom of Choice Plan would be struck down, which it was. And since I was had been to kindergarten in the black school, by the way, where my mother taught. My mother was an English teacher there. Uh, And my two brothers were there as well. But they thought, well, she's going to first grade. Uh, Let's do this. Let's start her at this school. And so I knew from the beginning. I don't remember my parents sitting down telling me, but they must have explained to me what was going on because I can remember very consciously knowing that this was a big deal. And I talk in the book about my grandmother. I had a grandmother who lived in Houston who was really pretty extravagant woman. And she went to Sackowitz, which was the big department store in Houston, and and bought all kinds of clothes, you know, for me. And I knew that that was a big deal, that everybody seemed to be involved in this effort. And it was was a big deal. I, I didn't know it. There was a lot of pressure put on my parents and there were threats and things like that, but I, did, I didn't know anything about that until later on. But the agreement was if my parents didn't go to the newspapers or didn't make a big deal about it, if I just kind of showed up <laughs> uh, and just like normally and just then everything, do that, it wouldn't be any problem. Did they handle and it right? They handled it absolutely right. Absolutely right. I couldn't have, the principal, my teacher, Mrs. Daughtry, my first grade teacher, everybody remembers their first grade teacher. Um, They were just perfect. Uh, I had no sense from them that there was any difference. Um, From all the kids, not so much. I mean, there were some kids who were very nice and some kids who were not very nice. Uh, But for the most part, I mean, the teachers were great. I mean, there was... uh, there was a sense of being on display sometimes because there would be sort of delegations of people who would come and would stand in the door and watch me, watch me in the classroom. So this was this big deal, having a, a black kid in this school. And so that kind of, you know, being on display is not, when you're six years old. Or 36. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not a, you know, it's not, it's sort of strange to do that, but I was a good student. And so I, was I think it made it easier because and I also it never thought about this and I probably should have put this in the book it didn't occur to me until afterwards that part of the thing was I think this may have been a, a courtesy of teachers to teachers my mother being a school teacher there could have been some even more extra solicitude towards me from my teachers that they were sort of like a a, a group or whatever so but any of whatever reason, they were wonderful people to me. And um, 
there were tough moments. Uh, at some point, my mother said that I broke out in hives. I don't remember that, but there must have been some sense of, of pressure that I have sort of pushed to the back of my mind in favor, as human beings do, of the nice things that happened. Because there were, you know, there were fun things. There were, Pete, there were kids who went out of their way to play with me for as many more of those people than the people who were hostile. Um, there was, you know, as I talk in the book about some hostility on the part of black students because uh, black people, because they felt that this was something of a betrayal because they loved their school, Booker T. Washington. And my mother taught there and, and there was, it's a community school. The teachers, they went to church together you know, they were relatives and so forth, all, I mean, and they wondered why my parents had sent me. They, is that a, that a statement about the school? But they left my brothers there because my brothers had started there and were gonna complete. And I was at the beginning of something. So, you know, that's, you know, I, you know, I remember people being very hostile to me um, because of that, because they thought that I was, I was the cause of all of this, but I didn't, you know, the court, I mean, eventually what happens is that the court did strike it down and then they ordered the desegregation of the schools. And so then everybody had to almost immediately had to pretty much leave and go um, go to uh, other schools. And I was already in place. So, um, you know, I was an object of of attention because of you know, what I had done in a positive way, but also in a negative way. It's also interesting that this idea that um, that you say, well, of course I hadn't done this. I mean, you were six years old, you know, um, and uh, and it's 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 also, you know, it's also funny um, to hear you say that everyone remembers their first grade teacher because I'm friends with my first grade teacher on Facebook now, so it's a whole different. <laughs> The whole different way we re remember and know our teachers. Um, mm -hmm. How did all this turn you into a, a, a historian? Well, I think thinking about the past and having questions about how, you know, how do we get here? How do we come to a place, a moment where it's a big deal for me <laughs> to be going to this school and that it took lawyers, I mean, that's probably one reason I became a lawyer too, that influenced me along those ways because I ended in that way, because I knew that they had been involved in this process of, of making change. So I'm sort of tied to the past. If you're in the South, uh, people are for good and evil, <laughs> I think, constantly looking back uh, and trying to figure out how did, how did we get here? You know, what, what is this all about? So I, I think my experiences pushed me in that direction. One of the things I love about Hemingses of Monticello, um, which is the study of not only, or Thomas Jefferson is one character um, in a book of many characters, um, is that the book does approach the story of Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson and all of their relatives, both black and white relatives on both sides. Um, of the family, um, it, it approaches it from so many different perspectives. And I love that. And I actually remember reading the book and thinking about the word detachment during mm -hmm. it, that she has detached herself from all the different emotions that we have surrounding slavery and surrounding sexual violence and all these other things to make a book and treat these people as whole as they possibly could have been treated. Um, 
And this um, feeling of detachment as you describe has also come up in your writing on Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. When did you realize that you needed a certain amount of detachment to both study and keep your sense of love for your beginnings in Texas? Well, I, I think if you're trying to get at the truth, whatever that is, a, a truth, as close to it as possible, I find it easier for me to get an answer. If I want the answer to a problem, to a question that I have, is to not put a thumb on the scale based upon you know, what I would like the answer to be or what would be comfortable to me to, you know, to, to have be true or whatever. And I know that that's impossible to have complete objectivity because you can't, but you can try. And to my mind, it's, it's, I like to stand back and observe, you know, to stand back and see, watch, uh, look at a system and to see, try to figure out what's making it tick, what's making people tick. And I find that it's an easier posture and you might, you get to see, as you said, people in all of their aspects, if you don't come in with an idea of what they're about and not let information take you where, you know, where it will, it will, it will lead you. Um, there's so many times when I was working on the Hemingses and other books, you know, my first book in particular, uh, where I'd, you'd come in and you'd say, you have an idea about how a thing works. And you begin to look at it and you realize that's not how it works. You know, that isn't how this is working. And if you're not detached, if you are, if you are you know, wedded to a particular answer, you just kind of ignore all of those things and you just keep barreling ahead, that's a recipe for disaster. So when I was trying to unravel, to think about Texas and think about what it meant to me, I had to try to, as much as I could, position myself in a, in a way so that I could see it, so that I could see all of the various actors, to see the people when I'm writing about my hometown, uh, the storekeeper who was so mean to us. Uh, and he was mean to us, and you know, I'm not, I don't want to make any excuses for him, but trying to understand what was going on there. If I looked at this person now as this, you know, he's a white guy and he had power, you know, over black certainly, but he was a storekeeper. He was working at his own store. He was not a Southern grandee. He was not, you know, but he felt really threatened by all of the things that were taking place, the changes that were taking place in our town. Doesn't mean I'm condoning it or whatever, but it's another gloss on it. You know, it makes him a more interesting person to me to think of it that way than just he was an evil old man. But you have found that you can experience the detachment and still retain the love at the same Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, and it's, and I say, as I say in the end, the love is easy to, because the formative things happened there, you know, the formative you know, I was with my mother and my family and, and, and good things happened to me there. Uh, but I have to acknowledge the things that were not so great 
you know, and the same thing with New York. I mean, that's probably why I live in New York, you know, I mean, it's the only other place, as I say in the book, that has as such an outsized sense of itself, particularly, you know, Manhattan, for heaven's sakes. Um, you know, it's New Yorkers and, you know, Brooklyn, oh, I Brooklyn, we want to add that in there as well. All of them, all the boroughs have their own, <laughs> this sense of, of themselves as special in some fashion. And uh, I think that's why there are probably so many Texans in New York. Because there's not really any other place to go. <laughs> what could be as big as Texas? Well, yeah, maybe. well, maybe California, California might have us in. Might, might, but, you know, other than that, if you want that feeling of, of unique, that you're, you're part of something unique, you have to be in one of these three places. Right, right. Um, uh, as a New Yorker, as a Bronxite. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> boogie yeah. down. Yeah. The boogie down. <laughs> and, and, and I'm a Mets fan, believe it or not. Um, but but as well, a Bronx, unfortunate. No, well, I don't mind not, the Mets. I don't mind the Mets. Sorry. I'm a Yankee fan, but I don't, I don't mind the Mets. And you were, and I don't want to get too off the beaten path, but you were at the George Brett game, which um, I remember talking with you on Twitter. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you don't, but I remember talking with you on Twitter. That must have been quite a moment when he came running out of that dugout. Oh God! I, I mean, I I thought <laughs> I never thought I thought he was going to explode. I was afraid <laughs> that he was going to spontaneously combust. Um, but as a Bronxite, um, when we uh, it took me till I was probably a teenager to stop saying the city when I was talking about Manhattan. That's how big of a deal Manhattan was. I realized I was in the city too. Um, you were. I, I was. I was. Yeah. And I, you know, in Manhattan, what did you say? Uh, uh, God love it or whatever you said. But yeah, too, <laughs> too much Manhattan. Um, I, um, uh, let's get to Juneteenth. Um, can you explain Executive Order Three? What was in it? How was it written? And and how that paved the way for this holiday? Well, he. It's a simple. Order. He basically says that, you know, pursuant to, he doesn't say the Emancipation Proclamation, but he makes reference to the executive order that now people are free and that they are occupy the same, you know, a position of equality with other people in, in the state. And, and so he says, don't, we, we urge you to stay in place. Don't, think that, you know, you should all rush to the army or whatever, but it's, it's a very, very uh, short, you know, clear cut statement about what had happened. But what's interesting about it, and I talk about this in the book, is that he does reference equality. You know, he, he says that they're going to be at, in, in a state of equality, which must have just driven people crazy. Because it's one thing if he had just said, you know, you're free and, you know, do what you know, now you're going to be second-class citizens or, you know, not much is going to change, but to suggest that, you know, he, he was, that there's going to be equality really, really made, I mean, it made other people angry. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between an employer and hired labor. I mean, so that's, it's simple, but it's a big deal to talk about equality. And, and I, I make the point that it references, incorporates by reference, I think, uh, with the word equality, the Declaration of Independence, that this is sort of, as the American creed that equality is important and that they have this now. So that's why people were celebrating. That's why people were whipping the people who celebrated because there was really mixed feelings about what this meant uh, for society. 
we have tremendous, uh, the ability of tremendous hindsight right now to look back uh, about 160 years or so. Um, but with that benefit of hindsight, we see what then happened and happens in the South, which mm-hmm. is that there was tremendous subjugation there mm-hmm. afterwards. There was an, a concerted effort by whites to reassert their, their place at the top of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to read a quote about this because it, it was a really interesting quote. That the state had been its own republic set them apart from other confederates. The very thing that has been seen as a source of strength and pride for latter-day Texans may have cultivated a stubbornness that prevented the state from moving ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. With, the, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, uh, how does it change the way we view that moment of the statement of equality? Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know that these people have a particular reason for rejecting it. As I said, this is... It was founded as a slaveholders republic. There was no ambivalence. You, know, you think about Virginia and places like that. Uh, the the founders talked about slavery as this necessary evil, and you know it will some, one day go away. All of that. That's not what was here. These people were coming here, and they're boosters with this, and they think that this is is great. And they have a republic. So they, they're used to being their own masters of their own fate in a way, not just masters of other people, but of their own fate. And now somebody has come and told them they've lost. They joined the Confederacy. And actually the last battle of the Civil War is in Texas and the Confederates win. So they're not, they're not defeated. They had been their own republic. And now someone is coming and telling them that they are going to be on an equal plane with um, their former, former enslaved people. So that we think of the Republic, you know, we're hardy and we, you know, we fight for our rights and all of those kinds of things. But here that was done during this time was in service of something that, you know, in service of white supremacy, essentially, in, in service of, uh, of a, a revolt or uh, abhorrence of the idea of freedom for African-Americans. So it's, it's stubbornness is great. But here it was used for, for purposes that it would have been better if all around, across the South, if they had accepted the idea, okay, um, Blacks are citizens. You know, we were in this former relationship with one another, and, but now we're going to go forward. But that's not what happened. And they ended behind in lots of ways because of that. You just mentioned Virginia. Um, and I want to ask you to compare and contrast the moment, um, I think it's April 7th, but it might have been April 8th, but in 1865, Abraham Lincoln comes ashore in Richmond, mm-hmm. and there's some dispute, but he is greeted by a number of people who had literally just been freed, and he is mm-hmm. surrounded by them, and at least mm-hmm. according to the descriptions of the day, um, he's hailed as a messiah, and, and yeah. th- th- there's a pastor that gives a, um, that they fling the slave pens open, and he basically proclaims freedom for all mankind. And this is seen as a, a truly incredible moment, maybe the finest moment the United States has ever had, um, and maybe, at least in my opinion. Um, uh, how do you compare and contrast those two announcements of freedom now being available? Well, you know, for Lincoln is Lincoln. <laughs> And his iconic figure. A little different Grant, than Granger. Granger I guess. is not, nobody knows who he 
was, except now, except in relation to this. Nobody, and that's true. (laughs) That's fair. That's not fair. No, he's he's known now. He's actually pretty well known for general because of Juneteenth, as a matter of fact. Uh, And one of the points that one of my colleagues made about this is that you know, he knows, he, one of the things, the first thing he does when he gets to Galveston, he'd been in Louisiana, was to do this and to make this proclamation. Um, he's making it in a different place. He's making it in, in, a, in an area that's relatively, well, I guess it's, it's, it's a diverse place. There, you know, Galveston is a port and relatively, relatively progressive, uh, a, a fair number of free blacks there. But it's a moment where people had been sort of weary of war. You know, this was this time we knew that they pre- they pretty much knew that all of this was over. <laughs> you know, that the that the war was done, and um, it was just a moment for people to celebrate, but also a sense that you know that it was that there was the future was open for people, and and I think people were still reeling about at what had happened to Lincoln at this time. Uh, they're not, not all over that. You know, they're not completely over that. It's just a different moment because it's the military. There are black soldiers there, you know, who are there, who are liberating, liberating the town. Again, think about what that would have meant to a site to see uh, them there in their uniforms. And it was just a joyous occasion until there was backlash. You say Juneteenth may well be on its way to becoming a national holiday. How would that annual celebration refocus America's discussion around race? And, and, you know, before you answer that, I do want to say, you know, sometimes we have to remember that holidays didn't always exist. They were created and new things can happen and we can adjust to having a new day, a new day off or, you know, a a new day to reflect. Um, I think that's really important when people think, you know, holidays weren't always holidays. See, yeah, you know, they're they're different, you know. Uh, there there's a difference in in what people want to celebrate given the moment that they are in in history. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so so how would an annual celebration of Juneteenth refocus America's discussion around race? And and let's go through the list. I mean, it seems trite sometimes, but stores would be closed, banks would be closed. There would hopefully be parades across the country. Schools mm-hmm. would be out, uh, take the day off mail would not be delivered. How would that kind of exclamation point on the day nationwide refocus our national discussion around race? Well, it would make people think about our origins. It would make, make people think about it in ways that we don't. And I think it's particularly important that it's not so far from July 4th. Because on one, you, you have this one moment where everybody would be, would have the occasion to think about slavery and the end of slavery and what you know what was required to bring blacks into citizenship and then you know a few weeks later we would have the fourth which is supposed to celebrate the american creed and i think having those the sort of one-two punch of that um, would spark conversation and spark people's thoughts about this matter about something that we haven't had the occasion to think about most people don't have the occasion to think about so it's you know, who knows where it would lead, but the first step is to have people aware and have people thinking about these particular moments, children, uh, ref- moments to reflect, all of those kinds of things, which I think could be very important. Don't know where it would lead, but I, I do think it would be an important important step. 
And what a mark it would make in the South too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I just, I think about, you know, the discussion in the South and you mentioned in the book, there are myths and legends that many of us cling to that regions cling to, that states cling to. And myths and legends may be sometimes helpful, probably more often are not helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, The South would, you know, it would be an interesting thing to see Juneteenth shutter post offices and schools and whatever else in Mm -hmm. Alabama and Mississippi. Well, it's interestingly enough, it became a state holiday, I believe in the 80s, in Texas, you know. And so when I grew up, it was mainly, as far as I knew, I should say, uh, black people who celebrated uh, Juneteenth. You know, at when I was at my grandparents' house, if I went to Emancipation Park in Houston, we did that uh, one year. It was mainly, I saw mainly blacks, but then it changed and it became something that all Texans, black and white, celebrated. And that's a Southern state. And I, I do think it sort of changed. It's, it's a chicken and egg. You don't know, but, but I do know you know, what came first, but I do know when I go back to Texas now, and when I think about the celebrations, there's much more of a concerted effort to bring black people into the history of Texas. Now that in some ways that can be, (laughs) that's a tricky business because of, you know, the Alamo and things like that. I mean, the, the slavery question, you can't have blacks fighting for something that means that they're going to be slaves. Right. (laughs) Um, but I do see people trying to, to bring black people into the history of Texas, much more so than when I was a kid. It's not do, even close. Do, uh, this is you know me being someone who's only, I think, been to Texas, one for spring break, I was at South Padre Island, and two, um, I think I was, I've, been, I've transferred probably in both Houston and Dallas airports, but I really <laughs> have not been on the ground in Texas. I had a trip to Houston that was canceled because of a rainstorm. Um, I was gonna see the Mets there. Uh, do white people celebrate Juneteenth there? Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They do. It's, it's a time for, uh, for all Texans. I mean, Texans, once something is identified as a Texas thing, um, <laughs> we all have they, to be they get on board. You know, I'll get, they, you know, they, for the most part, they get on board with it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Much more so than when I was a kid. Yeah. Much more so. Um, uh, I, I want to read this quote, uh, this ritual, meaning Juneteenth, was fitting and so very Texan. People of African descent, and to be honest, some of European descent, celebrating the end of slavery in Texas with dishes learned in slavery and a dish favored by Mesoamerican Indians that connected Texas to its Mexican past. So much Texas history brought together for this one special day. When you reflect on that passage, when you wrote that passage, um, what were the emotions going through you that you were trying to get onto the paper? Well, the feeling of love and the feeling of loss, because I, I, I talk also in that, that section about being with my mother and my grandmother and my grandmother's sister with my great aunt, making hot tamales and how exasperated I was as a little kid <laughs> to have to be there doing that. Mm. And now how now I would give anything to be sitting around a table with them doing this. But when you're a kid, you just don't, you don't get it. <laughs> you know, you, you really don't get it. Uh, so it, it's this feeling of family, the importance of the rituals, the importance of things that people do together as families that bind people to one another 
and can bind people to a place. I totally have, yeah, I totally have that feeling around Passover, my family's early celebrations. I was totally like, not with it. Like, let's go move along. And now (laughs) like, let's go. Now I I would give anything to be sitting back there with my grandmother and aunt and all these other people who are no longer with us, you know? Um, All right. I realize Thomas Jefferson follows you everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just wrote such a great book about it. So that's, that's just the way I guess it's going to have to be for you forever. Um, uh, um, uh, is there, and by the way, Hemings is a Monticello is, I think I've ranked 390 books on Goodreads. I believe it's one of 22 or 23 that have gotten the full five stars. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm an easy B, but a tough A. <laughs> this is, yeah. Um, is there a connection between the celebration and the promises of Juneteenth? and the celebration and promises of Thomas Jefferson? Well, I think the promises of Jefferson as the author of the Declaration of Independence, as as a person who promoted the, the good aspects of the Enlightenment, religious tolerance, uh, education, respect for education. Yeah, because after Juneteenth, with the and the, the existence of the Freedmen's Bureau, which was designed to help the former enslaved people. People tried to, people went there to learn to read. They went there to solemnize their marriages. They went there to, for help with contracts, you know, with their, with their employers to make sure that they weren't cheated. It's the hope, it's sort of an idealistic view of the future that these people had to have. You know, I mean, it's, these are unimaginable circumstances that they came out of, but even going into them to think that they were now going to try to live as equal in, in this society where they had been oppressed um, was, was an, an, required a, a huge amount of hope. And I think that's what the declaration has been. Those words, the beginning of it, the preamble talking about the universal, universal views about, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and, the, and equality are very much a part of what Juneteenth was about. And I think that's Granger's uh, very, very, you know, short uh, and terse executive order, general order, embodies that. It, it references that and brings that to the fore. So I do think that there's a connection between them. Authors hate this question and I'm, I'm taking <laughs> a risk. Anyway. In, I, I'm going to take a risk in asking it Am I allowed to ask um, what's what's next? What what are you working on? Am I allowed to ask that? Well, sure you are. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, I'm still working on a second volume of the Hemings family story. I am to interrupted that to do this, and I hope to have that in a couple of years. It's not going to be as long as the Hemings is a Monticello. They're not as that many people to follow. Not as many generations of people to follow. But um, yeah, so that's what I'm working on right now. Okay. Um, we'd love to have you back. Once oh, I'd love to be back. Fantastic. We'd love it. Professor Annette Gordon-Reed, author of On Juneteenth. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for asking me. Certainly check out that book and also her Twitter feed, which is at A. Gordon-Reed. The Hemings is a Monticello. As I said, is one of 22 books of over 375 I've given five stars to on Goodreads. Not to be missed. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. 
And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.